This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, uh, welcome everyone to New Books in African Studies. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, one of the hosts of this channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Hart about her 2016 book, Ghana on the Go, African Mobility in the Age of Motor Transportation, published by Indiana University Press. Dr. Hart is an associate professor at the History Department at Wayne State University. Her research interests uh, focus on African and, uh, and urban history, and she specifically works on the city of Accra in Ghana. Dr. Hart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, I wonder if we could start the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm originally from rural western Kentucky, uh, a place near Calvert City, which most people have never heard of or been to. Um, and I, uh, I made my way um, kind of out of there to um, Denison University in Ohio, in central Ohio. And I, uh, I worked with an extraordinary group of Africanists, interdisciplinary um, kind of cohort of Africanists there um, who happened to be faculty at the time, um, in, including uh, Pamela Scully and Sita Ranshad Nelson and, and Joanna Grabsky and Susan Diddick and Kent Maynard and James Pletcher. And um, the... I was an international studies major and started kind of pursuing African history there um, out of an interest in trying to understand um, a bit more about where my friends come from. I had, I had several friends from Zimbabwe, and I was really ashamed that I didn't know anything about them um, or, or where I, I didn't know anything about Zimbabwe. I didn't know I'd never heard of it before. I didn't know where it came from or, or where it was. I, I, I had no idea kind of... Um, the history and, and kind of culture of this place. And, and, um, so I, I started doing research from there and, um, I, uh, was very interested in, in development and, um, rigorous kind of interdisciplinarity. And so I, I was an international studies and philosophy double major and, and very interested in issues of identity and development and, and, um, and Christianity and, um, other, other sorts of, uh, related issues. Uh, and I did a study abroad program when I was at Denison, going to Ghana for a semester where I was pretty much directly enrolled in the University of Ghana and um, did some research there as an undergraduate and then went back and wrote an honors thesis about it. Um, I, I went on to uh, Indiana University for graduate school uh, where I got my master's degree, my PhD, working with um, John Hansen and um, Gracia Clark among many others, and um, was very grateful for the opportunity to once again kind of be in a, an interdisciplinary environment um, and have uh, continued to pursue my interest in, in anthropology and art history and 
in political science while also um, kind of being grounded or anchored in in a in, a, in one discipline in, in history. Um, and so African studies gave me the the ability that kind of situation being both in the history department and in African studies gave me the ability to kind of think about what it means to be simultaneously within a discipline and engaged in interdisciplinary work. Um, and now I, well, I worked uh, for a year at Goshen College while I was finishing my PhD um, and, and uh, got to know um, very well Jan Shetler, uh, who is there, who's, uh, who I was replacing when she was on sabbatical, and, um, and many of her lovely colleagues, and that was such a, a wonderful place. And um, I'm now at Wayne State University in Detroit where I, um, I teach courses in African history and history communication and digital history and world history um, and uh, work quite closely with colleagues at Michigan State University and the University of Michigan. Um, and how did you specifically come to write Africa on the Go? Uh, yeah, Ghana on the Go came um, in part out of, um, out of that first study abroad experience. I think... Um, you know, when I arrived in Ghana, I was um, I was very interested in the what I call what I ended up calling the kind of public culture of religion that was everywhere, and, and it was particularly on um, very present in the signs that were on shops and on the backs of uh, these public um, vehicles, these public transportation vehicles called trotros, um, but also taxis and other things, sometimes private cars. Um, and there's other elements of the public culture of religion that I was also interested in the, the, um, the kind of very loud and vibrant, uh, gospel music being played all the time and, um, the ways in which people greeted each other, which, which often at that time had to do with, um, with your religious affiliation, um, the, the kind of omnipresence of churches and, um, and mosques in, in people's daily lives. Um, and so I, I went to graduate school interested very much in, um, in this relationship between kind of the pub, this public culture of religion and um, and practices like market trading and and driving, which as some people or, or a lot of people often cast as part of the informal economy, um, and uh, so I started. Uh, I went to do pre dissertation research in two thousand seven um, when I was in graduate school and. Um, went to Ghana trying to, to trying to research this project. In particular, I wanted to, to do a, a, a history of the suburb of Medina in Accra um, and, and to talk about the role of the public culture of religion in Medina and, and the kind of role of religion in um, the development of the, of the town, and which was explicitly founded by a, um, a Muslim uh, cleric or scholar of some sort, and um, but, but quickly has become associated with a um, not only a large Muslim population, but also a very large Pentecostal-like Christian population. And so um, I went there trying to do research on that. And um, I started doing interviews. And I was particularly interested in interviewing um, people who own shops and the, the women who own the shops with the very vibrant signs and um, and people who drove vehicles, trotros and taxis that had these signs. Um and when I got there, I, I found that um, I had, because of a, a person who was helping me with my research, Samuel Ntuwusu, who's a very wonderful uh, scholar who works at the University of Ghana and um, various universities in the Netherlands. And he was um, providing, he had close connections because of his own research to drivers in Medina. 
And uh, so I found a very easy connection to to drivers and and, and had very interesting conversations with them. Um, most of them young, and um, and not really having a strong sense of um, the way that this public culture of religion changed over time. Um, but I I also but I did find it very difficult to talk to the female shop owners um, in in that short of a time, and so it uh, it became very difficult, and I started to get very anxious about whether it was going to be possible to do this research. Um, there was also not, not a lot in the archives that I could trace historically. So it, would, it still is a very interesting anthropological project. And some people are doing that work now, actually, out of the Netherlands. But, um, but it wasn't something I, I felt I could do as a historian at that particular time. But um, I did, in the process of, of trying to work out whether this, that, that research project was possible, I did interview a man, um, an older gentleman who uh, drove a shared taxi at Atomic Junction in um, just outside of Medina. And um, he had the most extraordinary life. And I talk about this in the introduction to the book, actually, that um, uh, you know, his name was, was Al-Haji, and he, um, he, was, um, he, he had begun driving quite early. He'd worked for the Public Works Department. And um, he, through the Public Works Department, began playing football. Um, his, his prowess as a football player got him significant attention and he, um, was able to play for the black stars, Ghana's national team in the year that they won the Africa cup of nations, which was pretty extraordinary. Um, apparently he got injured just before the, just before the match. And so didn't, didn't himself play in the, um, in the, in the match, but his brother did. And he was, he was part of the team. Um, and he, he also did other extraordinary things. He, he was one of the uh, ceremonial drivers um, at uh, just after independence, when the um, when people from all over the continent, leaders from all over the continent, came and gathered in Accra for a for the All Africa People's Conference, um, and and Kwame Nkrumah, um, his government identified drivers all over the city and asked them, um, gave them special uniforms and, and and fancy cars, and asked them to drive these people from the airport um, to um, to the conference center just outside Accra. And, um, and so he was, he was involved in those sorts of things. And it struck me as extraordinary that this man who, um, you know, worked in a field that many today really deride, um, as, um, criminal and, um, as, uh, kind of, uh, irrelevant, not irrelevant, but, but just not something of very high prestige, um, or something very important to history um, he, he was at the center of so many extraordinary events and it was his work as a driver that got him there. And, um, and so his story made it, um, suggested to me that there was, um, there was a, a very interesting history there. Um, it also made it clear that, uh, that history wasn't going to be, uh, linear in the way that, um, the way that some, historical narratives progress. Uh, he, you know, uh, and as I say in the introduction as well, that, um, you know, his, his life was a mobile one and, and mobile lives don't normally go in, um, in kind of straight lines. They're, um, they're traveling down roads, but they're, um, they, they take lots of turns. Right. And, um, there's lots of stops and starts and, um, uh, lots of backtracking and lots of going around the same routes over and over again. So, um, that that kind of metaphor of 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 the work of driving seemed to me to be, or ultimately seemed 
proved itself to be very apt in, in describing the, the ways that this, um, this history unfolded for me in the process of research. But I, um, I returned to Ghana, and, and, or I returned to Indiana and, and wrote grant applications hoping that this, <laughs> this work was going to pan out. It's something that, that I, um, I decided toward the end of my pre-dissertation time. So it, I'm so grateful that it, it, I'm so grateful for all the people that, that helped me in that process and all the people who talked to me in Ghana um, who helped that because it, it, was, it was a bit of a, um, a, bit of a leap. Yeah. And well, I mean, and, and as I started reading the book, I was, um, it, you know, I mean, it's almost like I, I was sharing your anxiety as I started uh, reading the introduction. I was kind of sharing into that anxiety because I, I have to confess, I was just not aware of, first of all, of the literature that uh, exists on, in terms, I mean, of, of the notion of mobility and, and automobility from the point of view of like just the history of technology. Um, so you had to sort of, first of all, leap into that and, and then sort of kind of find ways in which that literature might allow you to, to tell these other stories. So I guess and the other part of that, it was that I just was I had never thought about how uh, broad and how far reaching automobiles reach into people's lives, you know, and, and that's probably dumb because I guess you is one of those things that you take for granted and you just don't realize how much it shapes what you do and who you are and how you see yourself. Um, so as I was reading your introduction, I was uh, honestly quite impressed at just how you present us with this very expensive literature first and then this very expensive way of experiencing the world. And then you slowly through the book start to sort of find ways of telling this story. Um, so I was wondering if you can, you know, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't easy. <laughs> you, you make it look very easy in the book, but, uh, but how did you work your way into that particular structure and methodology? Because it is really like you had so much stuff that you could have said and you end up narrow, end up sort of narrowing things out in a way that that you come up with a, a very um, cohesive history. Yeah, the um, I, I think in in some ways I came away from the the research being very clear. Because, uh, so before this book was published, uh, it's it's the first to our knowledge of. of um, of its kind in terms of being a, a kind of comprehensive monograph that actually um, looks at the history of, of African motor transportation, which is uh, pretty extraordinary actually, um, because it is something that literally everybody talks about, right? Anybody who's gone to the continent, everybody has a story, right? Everybody collects the slogans that are on the back of vehicles, um, it would, which is something that, that is, is widely shared, not only on the continent, but elsewhere in the world. And, um, you know, everybody has transport stories. Everybody knows drivers, um, and and so it was. It was really extraordinary to me that there was very little written. Um, there, there's a few things uh, written about um, written about the the slogans on um, on the backs of lorries, but there's not much else. And and there certainly wasn't any wasn't anything written. Um, Historically, and that was starting to change a little bit. Uh, there is a an edited collection called the speed the speed of change that um, Jan Bart Gavald had put out around the time that I was I was writing, and there were a few graduate students, particularly in anthropology, 
Um, there were a few also working with Jan Barton history um, as part of a research project in um, in the Netherlands on the history of the internal combustion engine, and um, and so they and, and several of them working in Ghana, including Samuel and Tuusu, um, and 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 so and, and Jan Bart himself had written a bit about this um, as well, not in Ghana but in um, in Zambia and um, in Namibia, and uh, but but it it was just. It was it was very shocking to me, and so I, I felt myself a little bit adrift um, in in terms of Africanist literature. I didn't I didn't feel like there was an obvious um, set of scholarship that could inform what I was talking about. the um, The other challenge was that I was very committed to telling this story through the course of the twentieth century. I thought it was very important. Um, I thought it was very important to talk about um, the the kind of what the way that this this technology and the and the the lives of people who use that technology and create meaning with it changed over the course of the 20th century including the periods in the history of Ghana that tend to be ignored um in part because of uh the the 30 years or so of military dictatorship where not a lot found its way into the archives and um and and so i was I was kind of uh, adrift in two ways then I suppose at least in parts of the book where there were there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of archives available and there weren't a lot of secondary there wasn't a lot of obvious secondary literature available um and uh so I I found myself um thinking very carefully about what drivers said and in some ways that was a, a bit of a blessing um not having this kind of scholarly conversation this obvious scholarly conversation to connect to that was already kind of predetermined I I was forced to try to think about um, what the what the chronology or what the narrative would be from the perspective of people who experienced it, and um, and so I took very seriously the um, the kind of moments of change or shift that the drivers identified. I really tried to think carefully about um, silences where they existed. So, for example, in the um, in the period of military dictatorship, where I think I, I certainly went in assuming that there would be um, significant narratives of kind of resilience and resistance in the way that we see with market women in Ghana, that Gracia Clark, for example, um, studies and describes very in great detail and and, and with great um, eloquence. But uh, drivers didn't have that, and. Um, and so they they just they were like yeah it was fine we kept working you know <laughs> and um and so sometimes I would try to ask them leading questions to try to force uh, what I thought was a conventional chronological narrative based on the um, based on the extent uh, secondary literature and um, they they didn't respond to that at all and uh, so I I um I was forced in those situations to really take seriously what they were saying and to interrogate some of my fundamental assumptions about um about this economic sector, about, about the kind of role of drivers within the, um, the larger economy of Ghana and whether, whether, or to what degree the, um, the categories of formal and informal, which have been kind of the dominant ways that we've talked about African economy for the last, uh, at least 30 years or so, um, whether those were relevant and, um, to, to drivers work and, um, and and what and how kind of driving fit into the the kind of larger history of Ghana and um, of the continent, but also of of global history. And I think I was particularly um, well aware of 
the the significance of automobility and and felt particularly sitting in Detroit, um, the the Motor City that um, that there was this kind of dominant narrative about what the motor vehicle means and what it looks like and how it how it changed the world that um, they didn't always fit or didn't include or or leave room for stories like um, the drivers that I interviewed and the and the stories that I saw in the archives and so. Um, I think, you know, it was, it was in, in most cases, it was, it was the kind of lack of an obvious path that, that pushed me to, to try to find different ways to see things to, in, in an effort to kind of make sense of what I was, what I was seeing. And it often led me to challenge a lot of perceived wisdom, um, or, or kind of received narratives about, about these really, um, common things. Cause you're very right that, um, I think all of us, myself included, um, often take for granted motor vehicles, especially in the United States. And there is an assumption that it means a certain thing. And I mean, it's attached in this country to, um, to the idea of autonomy and freedom, you know, the open road, and there's all this culture, um, material culture attached to it and, and infrastructural or architectural um, kind of built environment attached to it. it. It literally changed our landscapes, right? It created suburbs and all these sorts of things. And, um, and so that kind of story, and, and particularly the the individual, um, the private car, the family car, um, is very dominant. It's the way that we think about what it means to be automobile, what um, what we think that these vehicles um, bring with them. And um, it was it was very interesting and provocative to me to think about um, the experiences of these of these drivers um, over the course of the 20th century and, and the ways in which they they didn't fit that narrative and, and what that might tell us about the history of technology and, and, um, and the history of mobility in Africa. Um, also was uh, wondering if you could tell us a little bit more, how did this um, dual meaning that you give to the notion of undergo um, came to you? You know, this, uh, you talk about undergo just in terms of like the, the physical mobility, uh, but also like a more, general um, sense of, of progress or possibility that, that, that sort of like has uh, underlined uh, the, the history of automotive uh, technology in Ghana. So how, how did that come to you? Uh, yeah, well, that, I mean, that's also something that came from drivers. And um, they, they were very clear um, to me that... Uh, that their embrace of this technology was because was was all about what it um, provided for them, and so they they used a couple of phrases over and over and over again, in some ways to my frustration, that um, that seemed to be very closely associated with their with their kind of occupational practice. And so the first was I would I would ask them, you know, why did you become a driver? And they would say, "It's in my heart," um, which uh, and I kept saying, "What does that mean? What does that mean?" Um, they're like, it's in my heart. Right? Um, but it, the, this idea that it was a calling, that, that there's something, there was something in them that um, a, I, I think in some ways a restlessness, um, a, a desire to um, to see the world, a desire to move that um, that was really important um, in their lives. And, and, and they felt compelled when they saw the vehicle, they would, they would talk about how they, they felt called um, to the vehicle in certain ways. Um, they would also talk a lot about how um, they 
went went in the process of being a driver through their experiences of being a driver their eyes were opened um they say many my eyes my eyes were opened and um this idea um, Gracia Clark actually makes an argument about um Anibuye being and, and kind of eye opening being a, a, a metaphor or a way in a con culture to talk about modernization or modernity this this idea that um it's a it's a fundamental change that you see things in new ways and um i think for many drivers uh, particularly in the 1930s um 1940s 1950s 1960s they um they really felt that their occupation was attached to a new way of being in ghana um and they were very proud of that they were very proud that um they facilitated not only their own kind of worldliness and, and, and eye-opening, but, but that of others. And they, um, they were part of a larger conversation that, um, that really tried to imagine what the future of Ghana would look like and, and to create systems and infrastructures on, um, in, in African terms from the, from the perspective of, of Ghanaians that, that really uh, tried to imagine a future Ghana. And um, even in the context of colonialism, right, which is which is often not the story that we get. So um, it it really does come from them, and I think that um, that that remains true in the in the later periods after the nineteen sixties, and particularly after the coup that overthrew Kwame Nkrumah. I think that the public conversation about Ghana being on the go has um, has declined a bit, and for various reasons, but the I, I don't think that it ceases to be true. I think that it's just the public conversation about that is, has changed. Um, and, and as a result, kind of driver's self, self-awareness kind of gradually changes over, over the second half of the 20th century. But, um, but it's shifting back again, I think, a little bit. So um, there might be, um, might be yet, more, um, yet more thought about that. But um, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, Ghana, it has long been this, um, this kind of, this, this place of great aspiration. I think that there's, there's some of that, there's a very entrepreneurial spirit in Ghana that's always thinking about kind of um, the future and, um, and, and thinking about um, how to create things, which I think is a very future oriented mode. But um, there's also, uh, you know, especially through Kwame Nkrumah and a lot of the nationalist movements, this, this notion of Ghana as a, as a leader on the continent, a, a place where, where political futures are imagined and, and brought into being. And, um, and so I think that's, that's really powerful and that's something that drivers felt closely as, associated with. Um, yes, and I also think, I mean, in, in your first chapter, um, I, I particularly found very interesting how it, it seems to be both a history, like you said, of innovation, um, but also of continuity of this uh, sort of entrepreneurial um, culture, entrepreneurial mobility, I think you call it. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, how, how you sort of find, uh, so how to juxtapose these two, these two stories of, of innovation and, and, and continuity? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is actually um, one of the more important things that um, African histories bring to the history of technology um, and, and the history uh, and, and economic history is this this notion that um, innovation doesn't have to 
look like the West, and it doesn't have to be completely new. And of course, in 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 the in the Western context, um, innovation wasn't ever something that was completely new. Things always you always kind of um, are rooted in your your current context, even as you're you're thinking about the future and thinking about change. Um, that's kind of a truism of history, right? We study continuity and change, um, and uh, but I, th- I think in in Ghana, um, that's that's a particularly true thing. And I think it's um, the fact that drivers and the other vehicle owners and traders and farmers, um, you know, seized on this new technology and and to innovate on existing practices um, to try to, to protect and reinforce their, their networks um, and, and to elevate them in certain ways. I think that's really powerful. And I think it's, um, it's a very it's a great challenge to the histories of um, of the continent more broadly, the histories of empire and imperialism and resistance and um, and all of these kind of big tropes of African history. I think, um, and and some of the broader narratives of world history that that Africans, um, as Clapperton Mavunga argues, you know, weren't mere um, adopters of foreign technology, but they they were creating things themselves, right? They were, they were creating technologies and they were creating um, technological systems and, and technological meaning and through innovation that was rooted in African experiences, that it doesn't have to be, um, doesn't have to be a kind of technology that, that is rooted in the, in the kind of cultural context, so, so, sociocultural um, context of the West. Um, and, and I think this is, um, I was just talking to and writing about Black Panther today. And, um, I think that, um, this is something that comes very strongly out of that film. And so it resonates quite broad, quite broadly, this, this idea that, you know, it's, um, there, there are other kind of technological futures that we can imagine that don't have to look like the West. There's different kinds of technological chronologies and narratives that exist that have different kinds of roots. And um, I think that the the story of drivers um, in this period is 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 a really powerful example of that. And, and it's interesting also because, in a way, again, uh, the story of automob- automobiles as, as a technology. Um, in a way, I, I was thinking about this as I was reading. Um, is similar in that sense, like you said, with, with other technologies. I mean, for instance, we, we keep talking sometimes about language as something, like you said, that was adopted or imposed or, you know, uh, but, it, but in many ways, European languages were, uh, were technologies that were adopted for the purposes of, uh, for African purposes. And, and, and in that sense, they were Africanized too. Um, and um, so, like you said, it, it gives you this, uh, this sense of, understanding technological introductions uh, or uh, adoptions, uh, not just in terms of impositions or, or outsiders, um, introduction of outside influences, but uh, as something that uh, was responding to very specific needs and offering very specific types of possibility. Um, so I, I thought that was a very, like you said, a very powerful way of challenging uh, how we study the introduction or, or technological history in, in Africa. Uh, but also, I, I was very, in that first chapter, I also thought that it was really interesting how it, it, it was a metaphor, if maybe not a metaphor, but but it was um, 
it, it came with that uh, also history of of how it, it was a response to this notion of technopolitics. You know, the the the, the notion that uh, the colonial powers, uh, the British, were trying to sort of defend the the preeminence of the railroad um, as, as as something that they could control, as opposed to these automobiles or, or, or mobile vehicles that um, that Africans could. Uh, from through which Africans could could gain greater control of their own lives. Um, so, uh, can you speak a little bit more about that sort of um, co- uh, conflict? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, for the British uh, and for colonial governments across the continent, I think that um, there was an assumption that industrial technology was was this. Um, this awe-inspiring um, kind of what what Brian Larkin calls the colonial sublime this this thing that would that would just kind of um, you know induce awe and um, and deference among African peoples and um, and in part that comes from Europe's own history right that um, if you've if you've watched kind of anything any kind of British drama set in the nineteenth century you you inevitably get a story about how people were scared to ride on the first, on the first train. Um, and there's, there's lots of, um, historical accounts of that, of people fainting and other sorts of things. And the same with motor vehicles, right? And very, very, um, a lot of fear associated with the danger of motor vehicles. See that in Downton Abbey, for example, right? It's the storyline there (laughs) in the early 20th century. So, um, you know, Europeans had this awe, um, attached to, to to technology, um, and and um, had used technology for their own purposes, but had a were, were certainly overconfident, right? And in, in the ways that um, it, you know, as part of a kind of larger hubris that comes with the civilizational um, mission that, that they were, that the British and, and others were pursuing, um, you know, really believed that their their grasp, you know, if they had managed to grasp these things, um, to develop them and grasp them and, and tame them to be less dangerous than, um, then that means that they were not only, um, had a degree of technological superiority over other parts of the world, but that they, they should be able to use those technologies to control people and within their own populations and, and elsewhere. And, um, and so certainly, uh, in colonies, uh, which were explicitly, I mean, you know, co- colonialism in Africa was, it was an explicitly extractive enterprise. The, the British and the French were very clear about this, um, regardless of the kind of rhetoric of civilization and, and kind of altruism, it was, it was clear at the end of the day that it, w- it was about trade and, and about capitalism and extraction to fuel the industrial economies of the West, um, which needed a constant supply of, of raw materials and, 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 and growing markets to sell surplus. And so, um, you know, the uh, technological infrastructure, particularly mobility infrastructure, transport infrastructure was very important to that, um, that narrative. And, um, so that, you know, there's this very famous map that I think everybody who teaches African history uses, um, of the continent and its railway lines that go directly into the interior. Right. And, and, and we often use this map to, to, um, highlight very visibly and, um, and, and kind of undeniably that, that infrastructure in, in the colonial context was almost exclusively built for extractive purposes. And that was certainly true of railways in the gold coast. That um, that railways were were an effort to control the flow of 
of goods that were necessary or very important for industrial production. And, and initially that was, um, well, earlier than that, it was, it was the slave trade, but, but by the time they were building railways in the early 20th century, it was, it was palm oil and, um, and cocoa. And uh, particularly by the 1930s and 1940s, it was cocoa. And uh, this, it was it was particularly interesting in the Gold Coast, and and I think um, is very different than a story in South Africa, for example, um, or Kenya even, because Africans controlled the land and um, were the pri- were the primary or sole producers of cash crops, and so had significant economic authority or economic autonomy because of that. Right? They they had leverage, um, and had long controlled the interior trade. And there are very powerful trading kingdoms, um, including the Asante, but but not all, not only that um, that were able to um, not only control the economic sector, but to back that control up with um, with a very powerful military. And so there was this big effort at the beginning of the 20th century to try to break some of that and um, to be able to more directly control the flow of goods um, and and to cut off. Um, African authority or or um, autonomy as much as possible, and so uh, railways were built, particularly into cocoa growing regions, um, which often tended to produce palm oil as well. And um, the goal was to get Africans to sell directly to um, trade representatives at railway stations in the rural areas in the in the co- in the production zones, and to um, and then to allow the railway to to control the movement of that produce to the coast where they could sell it then for a higher price and ship it abroad. And, um, and so the, you know, the goal was to cut down the the cost, right. And to undermine um, the power of, of African farmers and traders. Um, What's great about um, this story is that uh, Africans use this technology of the motor vehicle, uh, which Europeans dismiss as something that they're not really interested in pursuing and they don't think is going to be useful um, and uh, really take it as their own and use it as a way to undermine the system, right? Um, using uh, roads that were uh, that were for some reason built directly beside the railways. Um, in many cases, building their own roads, particularly in cocoa growing regions, using their profits and investing them in these vehicles and in in the infrastructure necessary to run them um, as a way to get around this colonial control. And and I think that's an incredibly powerful story about. Um, not so much, um, not so much resistance, I suppose. I mean, it's a form of resistance, but it's, it's also, um, more than that, right? I think Africans, um, African farmers and traders and, and drivers and other people were, were asserting a sort of, um, a, a sort of control, a, a persistence, um, and, and control and autonomy in the colony that they, that they in many cases used to try to argue for rights to further infrastructure and investment. Um, and, and so really kind of making citizenship claims in, in really important ways that, that we don't often hear about. Yeah. I mean, it, it brought to me really this notion of, um, of kind of like an ownership of, of, of this uh, emerging society, state, and using uh, this technology to claim ownership of it, and and I thought it was, um, as I said, you know, it was it's kind of like a, a an assertion of agency uh, that uh, that oftentimes, if you just saw it, and I think you make this this point in the in your introduction, if you just thought about 
the automobile as uh, within the history of like uh, just another commodity that is introduced in, in this new area, um, you would not necessarily see it that way, you know, as as a, as a means through which people asserted their own agency. Uh, but that was exactly what they did, and um, and and it's interesting as you continue uh, in the next two chapters um, to talk about how how this develops, you know, sort of that that the contestation continues, uh, although it sort of moves to other areas uh, like public safety or who's entitled to um, to become a driver uh, and, and what is it exactly that comes out of being a driver. So h- how do you see those uh, those questions developing uh, in this latter part of the colonial period? Yeah, so the, um, the British uh, kind of have to play catch up, right? They didn't um, they didn't see motor transportation as something that was that was interesting or or viable, and they certainly didn't see it as something that Africans would control. Um, the idea that that Africans were drivers and controlled most of the motor transport sector was really unprecedented within the British Empire and, and across the continent. And people who would come, um, British colonial officials and and others who would come to the continent, they would they would tell each other, oh, "It's different here. Africans drive." Um, you know, you won't see a, a, a European person driving, and um, that that was that was something that wasn't possible elsewhere. At least at this early period, it becomes possible after independence, and, and you see the growth of these these motor transport sectors after independence in many places. But in Ghana, it happens much earlier, um, and so uh, colonial the British colonial state finds itself kind of caught unawares and has to retroactively figure out how to control this industry, which has emerged outside of its control and, and without its, um, without its systems of regulation. And so you see a lot of tensions over, um, the 1930s, 1940s and 1950s about what, um, what a proper driver looks like, right? And here you have different kinds of work cultures and technological cultures and, and cultures of expertise and skill and risk that come into conflict in, in really interesting ways that I think are very instructive for historians of Africa, uh, historians of economy. Um, and and a, lot of these, a lot of these debates continue to resonate today. So for example, um, the, I think the, one of the most interesting to me that that goes that's a sort of theme that goes throughout the book I think is is this notion of risk and um, we often associate uh, we being people in the West or whatever um, often associate risk as being an inherently bad thing um, that risk is something you want to try to avoid right we um, and 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 you want to um, if if you if there's are things that are inherently risky that you want to ensure yourself against risk, right? There's all, there's all these sorts of um, ways that we try to calculate risk and, and avoid it. And um, the the British certainly operated on that um, in that way. And I think a lot of the scholarship on um, African roads and um, and African economies also comes from this or is rooted in this assumption. But um, drivers did not see it that way. Drivers saw risk. Um, the drivers I talked to certainly saw risk as something that you managed, that your skill was determined not by your ability to avoid risk, but by your ability to manage risk. And so if you could manage risk and not um, suffer the ill consequences, so if you could engage in risky behavior and still keep control of your vehicle, that meant you were a real expert. You have very um, high levels of skill. And um, the ability to do that was something that you observed through training 
um, through long, long systems of training as, as assistants or mates on, on vehicles and, um, with, with master drivers and, and you learn to, to control yourself. You learn to block out the, the kind of, um, what, what drivers sometimes refer to as the sort of nonsense of passengers, um, the, the arguments and the noise and the whatever, um, and to know your vehicle very well. And, and so they, you know, especially early drivers and especially drivers of mammy trucks that, that drove long distance, they, um, they were very involved in the, um, in, in, in kind of knowing their vehicle, they were, they were mechanics themselves. They, they knew how to repair things. And in many cases, there were quite elaborate stories about how they would repair things on the road, putting banana skins on hoses and other sorts of things. Um, but, uh, you know, we're incredibly proud of, um, of their ability to do this. And, uh, so it, you see over and over and over again in the colonial archives, these, um, these conversations, uh, between, you know, police officers and district administrators and, and other sorts of things, other sorts of people saying, you know, why do Africans continue to overload their vehicles? Why do they continue to drive too fast? Why do they, um, you know, why do they park on their roadsides? Why do they drive over rough roads? And, um, what what drivers told me was was that those things weren't considered bad. They, it was only bad if you got an accident, right? Um, and if you got in an accident, it meant you weren't a very good driver. And uh, and many of them, um, many of the older drivers were very proud to tell me that they'd never had an accident. And um, and so this, I th- I think, and the, and this this is something that continues today, right? We have all this this kind of anxiety attached to precarity, and and there's I've had very interesting conversations recently with with Canaans who, who again, frame, frame the idea of risk or precarity in very different ways. <laughs> they say risk is, risk is opportunity. Um, not necessarily something inherently bad. And, you know, whether I agree with them or not, or whether I see that as a, as a collective social good or not is not really the point, but, but they certainly have a different way of thinking about it. And I think it structures, um, the kind of economic decisions that they make in, in, in different sorts of ways. Well, and they certainly saw, um, they, they they certainly uh, saw a lot of that risk taking rewarded. You know, they they did achieve, as you said. Uh, I mean, as they uh, as they they achieve greater profit, they agree. They achieve many of them uh, greater sense of respectability, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, so in, in many ways, it was not a myth. <laughs> you know, they they saw um, they saw the they reap the benefits of of taking some of those risks. Uh, but at the same time, understood um, uh, th- they were very political savvy. They obviously understood uh, the advantages of seeking some forms of profit, uh, becoming more a more professional um, um, sort of group uh, through their unions. Um, so it, that was also interesting that they, even though they understood that some of those behaviors. Uh, would give them some benefits. They also saw the benefits of of, of seeking some kind of uh, more professional status. Yeah, I think a lot of that, though, um, I talk a lot about the um, driver concerns about the conditions of possibility of their work. And uh, when I when I talk to drivers about um, about the government and the role of the government, um, they would frequently say that um, that government should, you know. Uh, ensure the conditions of possibility for our work and lives and otherwise should stay out of our way. <laughs> um, and, uh, 
and and so this this notion that and, and you know in part that comes from a, a kind of colonial context where the government wasn't a social contract right it wasn't coming from the people it was it was intended to to limit african opportunity um and access and so um you know i think for them uh, professionalization to some degree i mean they had systems of training that were about kind of passing on skill and developing expertise but i think that the notion of professionalization in a formal sense and in terms of um, forming unions uh, to negotiate with government was really about protecting the conditions of possibility of their work. And the British made it very clear that they would not negotiate. They would not engage in collective bargaining or any sort of negotiation, would not meet with representatives who were not registered as formal unions. And, um, and so, you know, British trade unionists went around the country um, and, and around the continent, really, um, trying to organize people into these, into these trade unions um, and, and drivers really took this on, but did it again on their own terms, right? So, so taking older traditions of, of driver training and, and systems of chieftaincy and, and other sorts of things to, and, and kind of bringing them together in, in a, um, in a form of occupational, um, association and professionalism that, that it has a lot in common with unions, but also functions very differently from them. So how does this all start to change um, in the post-colonial period? Uh, as you said, you know, there's uh, a lot of the, there's going to be some elements of continuity, but there's also uh, going to be a lot of change. So, which is what you trace in the um, letter chapters of the book. Uh, what are the main things that start to change and what are the main things that sort of uh, remain? Yeah, so um, a lot of the change that happens in the, especially between the 1960s and the 1980s, um, isn't something that happens immediately or that the drivers see is happening immediately. So it was, it was kind of interesting to think about that. Um, so as I mentioned before, you know, I would I would ask drivers kind of when did things get bad or or you know in the in the 1980s there was a shortage of petrol. Surely things had to be really hard then, or there were no spare parts. You know what? Um, what did you do? Were things difficult? And they were like, no, nah, we still had, we still made money. Right. Um, and as good entrepreneurs, I think that, um, you know, the most successful drivers, the ones that were well established and, and really knew their vehicle and, um, and knew their work, um, adjusted, right. They adjusted the con- to the conditions and they, in many cases, raised their fares. Um, of course, uh, when, um, you're providing a public service for a private profit, and everybody is in a condition of, or is, is in a, is kind of living through a context of great economic instability and stress. Um, in, in the case of the 1980s, people literally starving. And in, in some cases, uh, kind of infamously wearing Rawlings necklaces, you could see the, um, the collarbones of their, um, you could see their collarbones um, during this period because there was so little food because of a drought. And, and so, you know, in, in those situations, uh, when you continue to profit, um, and in many cases profit quite significantly, um, while others are suffering, you kind of um, are in a very vulnerable position. And indeed, drivers um, quickly become like market women, um, who were also in a very similar situation, um, become scapegoats and and um, and in some cases scapegoats on the part of the government who who were unwilling or unable to to kind of uh, address or halt this kind of economic decline over the course of about 30 years. Um, but, but also, um, increasingly criticized by the public who, who felt that, that drivers and market women were kind of unfairly profiting from their, from their, their struggle, um, and their suffering. And, 
Um, and so the, the kind of goodwill that had existed between the public and drivers for a very long time um, really starts to, to dissipate. Driver, the, the conversation about drivers is no longer about them being worldly and cosmopolitan and desirable mates, but becomes about them being kind of criminal um, and dirty and uneducated and, um, and other sorts of things. And what's interesting is that driver practice during this period doesn't actually change very much that it's, it's the public conversation in the broader economic context that changes and drivers um, in not seeing that find themselves caught on the, the kind of wrong side of that conversation. And um, in many ways there might've been nothing they could do. I mean, they were entrepreneurs, they were trying to make money. They're not, um, they're not a, an altruistic, um, it's not an altruistic enterprise, but um, they, they certainly do find their, their fortune significantly um significantly altered and, and older drivers in particular would talk about that with great, um, with great sadness. The, um, in, in the beginning in, in 1983 with the, the development or the, the embrace of structural adjustment and, and new forms of new models of development, you do see a, a reinvestment in, um, in motor transportation infrastructure more broadly funded by world bank and IMF loans. And, um, Drivers in some ways get, are kind of recovered their position and their, their kind of strategic position in relation to the government um, because structural adjustment, of course, encourages decentralization. And so the idea that, um, that government would not control, um, would not control fares and would not control um, infrastructure systems and, and, and transport systems like trotros or mammy trucks for example, um, meant that the unions became much more powerful and much more important in this period. Um, but it also means that um, drivers, the, the kind of broader conditions of structural adjustment, which which don't ultimately end up producing the kinds of economic broad-based economic growth that and um, that that was promised, um, means that more and more and more people enter the sector. There's a flood of vehicles into the country and vehicles get more expensive, even at the same time that they're, they're more widely available. And, and so there's a lot that, that kind of um, undermines driver's work at the same time. So it's certainly a very complex, um, a very complex situation, a complex set of processes that they're negotiating, which they can't often see, right? They don't always have access to the, um, to the broader kinds of policy conversations and so they're in many ways kind of responding to uh, to things as they come yeah and and it seems like to, to a large extent um like you said it, it was just it, it is difficult to think of anyone even at a at a policy level who would be able to foresee just how large uh you know how how just even the just the sheer number of vehicles in the road would uh uh, would increase. I mean, um, the, the first time I went to Ghana, uh, there was, I mean, I, I think the, between the first and the second time I went to Ghana, there was probably like eight years and I, I just couldn't believe how much traffic, <laughs> much Indeed, more traffic yeah. there was. I mean, yeah, same. <laughs> in just a very brief amount of time. So, so that alone uh, sort of gives you a sense of, of how rapid the change was and, and how it's possible that nobody literally saw it coming. Uh, well, um, I think I've taken quite a bit of your time by now. Um, uh, could you tell us a little bit uh, what are you working on right now? 
Sure. Um, I'm, I'm following up some of these themes in, in slightly different ways, um, focusing in particular on the history of Accra. And uh, so right now I'm actually in the midst of working on a, um, some things uh, contextualizing or thinking about the kind of policy implications of um, bus rapid transit. And, and imagining or thinking about trotros as, as um, indigenous technological systems that maybe um, can be viable alternatives um, or viable viable systems to deal with with urban crisis um, with a little investment and, and careful thought. So so really think so really taking these these concerns and questions um, that I pursued historically in the book into the present and, and thinking about their policy implications today. Um, and I'm also doing a I'm beginning work or have been working for the last couple of years, I suppose, on um, a history of uh, what we've called DIY urbanism in Accra. And so the looking at the, the development of the city over the 20th century through the lens of, of kind of local development and um, grassroots development and looking at the kinds of solutions and, and ideas of, about kind of space and mobility and, um, and urbanity uh, that that Accra residents have come up with on their own, and and that have in many cases really stood the test of time or defined the city in really important ways, um, as a, as a as a way to kind of counter the the very dominant um, story about Accra as a as a planned city or a failed city or a city of slums or um, or something else, but instead to instead to say that um, that these these local practices actually mean mean something, and, and perhaps the the failures of um, of the city or the, or the ways in which the city is, um, is a difficult place to live might have something to do with, with our inability to, to see, to understand and to meet the needs of, of people who live there. Wow. That sounds great. <laughs> are you finding, um, are, are you, are you pursuing this similarly to, uh, the previous project through, uh, sort of private stories, match and try to match those questions uh, with archival searches? Uh, in many cases, yeah. A lot of the things that um, that I am interested in now don't really show up in archives very much, not unlike actually the, the history of driving. A friend of mine, Josh Grice, frequently talks about how when, you, um, when you're doing the history of things that are considered part of the informal sector, those tend not to appear in the archives, right? That the archives are by nature um, documenting the formal sector. And, and when they do talk about um, what, government officials consider the informal, they're often doing so in a derogatory way, right? So um, so there's there's limits to the archives. So yeah, it relies very heavily on on interviews and, and material culture and um, and popular culture that is that makes it a really exciting project. Yeah, it does sound. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed it and um, I hope you did too. And we really look forward, <clears throat> sorry, I, we really look forward um, to your next project. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>